0: us pray. Father, we thank you for your power and might, for your mercy and kindness, and we thank you for your word, which doesn't fail. We pray, please, as we read it, as we engage with it, you might help us understand the comfort, the love, the forgiveness that you offer, and know whether you can be trusted on all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, some people have days, some have weeks, some have years when their world seems to be falling apart. I don't know if you describe yourself in that kind of situation right now. Anyone want to admit to that? You know, it's just, everything's bleak. Nothing's going right. Uh, I know the Horner's had some bad news this morning. Uh, David's dad, we can pray for him later, Uh, has had a fall and and broken things and been rushed to hospital. Uh, The Healy's, everything hasn't gone so smoothly with uh, Ray's recovery. I mean, he went in for a hip operation, ended up with quadruple bypass. Uh, and now he's got air bubbles in his lungs and he's in another hospital. Uh, I don't know if you've had times like that in the past and I wonder if things have ever got so bad Do you wonder, is God there at all? Uh, does he care? Can God do anything? Uh, perhaps there's times when you wonder why your prayers seem to go unanswered. You know, you think you're praying for the right things, for godly things that if you were God, you would do, but he doesn't seem to. Does he care anymore? Did he ever care? And maybe you've even been at that point uh, where it's almost too difficult to go on believing, trusting, and living for God. For Judah in 700 BC, the time of Isaiah, things in recent years have been bad. So bad, in fact, that you hear the desperation and the cry in the middle of this fantastic passage. What are Judah and Israel saying? Isaiah 40, verse 20. My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Where is he? He Doesn't know. He doesn't care. And maybe you might wonder how they could have felt that way after last week's episode. We saw in Isaiah 36 and 37 where God had miraculously destroyed the enemy at the gates, as the angel of death went out in one night. 185,000 hardened Assyrian warriors had died outside the city with no sword being drawn. How could they not believe that God was with them, that He wouldn't answer their prayers? They had prayed, and He had delivered. Well, maybe they were just hardened whinges for whom nothing was ever going to be good enough for them. That might be the case. Uh, maybe, though, it was the distance of time, sometimes present circumstances make us forget God's kindness and mercy in days gone by. And obviously, uh, chapter 40 and beyond is written some time later. Uh, maybe it was the grim reality of the cleanup of the nation. I mean, there was the 185,000 dead bodies just outside the gates. Someone had to go and deal with that. But then every city had been destroyed. Thousands have been killed, millions with homeless, years and years of rebuilding the cost, the pain of rebuilding the whole nation. And so one night of salvation kind of might have paled into insignificance for some of them. Or maybe word had leaked out of Isaiah's most recent prophecy to the king, King Hezekiah, about Babylon coming and they would bring even worse than they'd experienced before. And within 120 more years, it would be as was said. They'd be pretty well annihilated, and whoever remained was to be taken into slavery in a foreign land. Maybe they were just coming to the horrible realization of the extent of their crimes, and perhaps they thought there was no way back with God from all of this. But whatever the reason, the people of Judah had come to the conclusion that God no longer saw, God no longer cared. And in the latter years of Isaiah's life, perhaps he was now in his late 60s, early 70s, we've seen him in his uh, early adulthood as a father, and we saw the birth of his kids uh, early on, but now in his older age, uh, he's lived as the prophet of God, spoken those words of judgment through the reign of four kings over a period of about 40 years, and all of a sudden along comes chapter 40. Uh, It's the start of a completely new message about how that's all going to change, and takes to the end of the book to, to tell the story. But chapter 40 is the turning point. And verse 1 comes like a, a thunderbolt of hope into these dark days that they're facing. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Three commands, comfort, comfort, Speak, proclaim. They are the commands of God. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Proclaim the end of the pain. Now, it's not really clear who's supposed to be doing the speaking, who's meant to be doing the comforting and the speaking and the proclaiming. In one sense, it's Isaiah who's doing it right now. But as the passage goes on, it's clear it's talking about someone else as well a mysterious voice calling out those words, perhaps a voice from the distant future. But either way, the message is to be cloned, a message is to be announced, words of great comfort. And it's not going to be cheap comfort and empty words, but a rich and powerful message grounded in the heart of God. Now, it's hopeless when people give words of cheap comfort when they say, you know, uh, what they say really doesn't deliver in terms of true reassurance. You know, as terrible things have happened, they go, there, it'll be Okay. It really will. You know, you've just uh, been robbed. The burglars have come in. They've taken everything. They've stripped it. They've even raided the fridge and taken all the good stuff out of there. And they say, there, there, the Brussels sprouts are left there, so you've got something to eat. Yeah, we've got a a word for that. Cold comfort. I don't want to eat Brussels sprouts. The message that's proclaimed is not like that. It's comfort that matches the situation perfectly, and it's real comfort uh, because the message is an announcement of three things, three realities, three truths, and I reckon if you get these three things locked away in your mind, you'll you'll understand just how great the comfort is that God is offering. Announcement number one: God has not forgotten His people. God remembers them. Verse one: Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. God's people belong to Him. They're His. The covenant that God made at Mount Sinai with Moses and Israel, it's you know, hundreds of years, it still stands. The covenant that he made with Abraham way, way back at the formation of Israel with the, the promises to Abraham, that still stands. That They remain his treasure possession. He's not indifferent, he hasn't forgotten and he still has plans for Judah and for Israel. They may think that God no longer cares but God's message is I have not forgotten you. And so like the prodigal son in the faraway country, they're reminded they still have a father who loves them and they have a home to go to. God remembers. Announcement number two, God forgives and he deals with guilt. And that's why there's comfort to be had. Verse two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that a hard service has been cleared, that her sin has been paid for. The penalty for their sins has been paid in full. And so they can now be released from their slavery and hard labour. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible? Has the, the invasion they've just endured a couple of years ago paid for their sins? No, it hasn't. Can can the 50, 60, 70 years of exile they're about to experience bring atonement? Yeah, can, it, can it make up for the rebellion which has gone on and on and on for scores of generations, over hundreds of years? Could it even atone for the sins of the people there present, let alone for those of their ancestors? No, it's but a pittance compared to their crimes. So how can God deal with their sin and forgive them? Well, that's a mystery that won't really be explained until chapter 53. So you'll have to come on Good Friday for that. But for now, the great truth is allowed to stand alone in full and wonderful splendour. Pardon is coming. Forgiveness will be granted. Full atonement will be made. It's exactly what they needed to hear and exactly what we need to hear. In fact, there is no true comfort without that message. God's people are forgiven. Their sins are no more. The third announcement. God is coming. In person. He puts his money where his mouth is. Verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, for those uh, pedants who uh, get confused and by punctuation, uh, it does depend on how you punctuate, whether it's a voice calling out in the desert, prepare for the way for the Lord, or whether the voice is saying, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, and Bible readers down in the years have been confused when they've read this and then they've read the Gospels and it's punctuated different. But The punctuation's not there in the original. You can do it either way, uh, and it turns out, It's a voice in the desert because we know who it is. We'll get to that later. But either way, the message is here. God is going to show up personally. It'll be unmistakable when it happens and everyone's going to see it. And if you've followed along in Isaiah so far, you'll you'll remember that's a potentially horrifying prospect. Because up until now, every time that God has announced to Isaiah that he is about to come, what's it to do? What does he come to do? Judge. Judge, smack them down, destroy. He's coming to get the nations. He's coming to get Israel. He's coming to get Ahaz. He's <laughs> but this coming of God, the voice has to announce, is is profoundly different. God is coming to be with His people and to draw them to Himself. And as we read out, uh, read on in the chapter, we find out that what God is promised is not just that He's coming to them but he'll, he's coming in order to bring them home. He's coming to gather his people and treat them with, with tenderness and compassion and kindness and love. And, and we read there, as the world looks on, they'll learn what kind of God this is. As the mountains are levelled and the highway in the desert is made, every obstacle that is is gone. And he comes, God's glory will be revealed and all of humanity is going to see it. And it's a nod towards What's a recurring idea in the book? There have been hints of it before now, but it's going to start building to a crescendo by the end of the book, that God is a missionary God. What he does for his own, he will do for others. People who are not yet his people will be gathered into his arms to become his people. It's not just for Judah. God is coming. And God is coming together, all kinds of people from all different tribes and nations and tongues and languages as his own, in, in, in his arms, in tenderness and compassion. So that's the announcement. God has not forgotten his people. God forgives. And God will come and bring his people home. Now, are you comforted by that? Is that comforting to hear that that, that is God's message? And not just to the people then, but to to us. They are comforting words. But the question I want to ask is, are they true comfort or are they cold comfort? Is it the, there, there, it'll be okay. The Brussels sprouts are still left. (laughs) Well, it all depends on whether God is good for his word or whether he's able to do what he said here. See, what if something goes wrong? What if God is prevented from coming and he stopped And over the last 20 years or so, coming out of the States, as everything comes from, there's been a systematic attack going on in churches and coming to a pulpit near you on whether or not God even has the capacity to make good on his promises. Oh, he makes promises, but he may or may not be able to keep them because it all depends on us whether whether he can do what he said or not. It all depends on circumstances and things lining up just right for God to be able to do any of these things he said he, he wants to do. Now, it's called uh, the openness of God or open God theology, uh, and that's because in this new teaching, the future is not a thing. It's not a reality. It doesn't exist yet, and it's not yet said. The future is open, and so God's open to the possibilities. Uh, and the future that will occur is the interaction between God, us, and random events outside of anyone's control. Yes, God's a good guesser as to what will happen because he's pretty smart. He can see everything that's currently the situation and the trajectory and so he can go, mm, yes, I, I will say that will happen even though it's, it's only probably will happen because he can see the state of play. Yes, God can plan and hope for things to work out uh, how he wants but God cannot know the future because the future doesn't exist to be known. All you can know is the present and the past. And in fact, the very announcement of the voice here in Isaiah 40, for them is the proof that we can stop God. Because what if we don't prepare the way like the voice says? You've got to prepare the way for God and then he'll come. Uh, What if no one does prepare? That'll mean he can't come. If the way isn't clear, then stop, we can stop him. In fact, in the other reading in Mark, coincidentally, because we're just plowing on through Bark, I mean, isn't that what happens? Jesus is there, and they're, they're saying, well, he's from Nazareth. He's one of the, you know, what good comes from there? He's a the Joseph's son. And, you know, he, he, he wasn't able to heal the sick people because of the lack of faith. And so they stopped God. And so, for example, some of the examples they use, uh, the suggestion is that Mary, you know, Jesus' mum, could have said, when the angel said, hey, you're about to have a baby and you'll name him Emmanuel, God with us, she could have gone, no, don't think so, don't like that idea, kind of like a Tanya, she does that kind of thing. No, not like that, (laughs) I don't think so, (laughs) you know, not interested in babies, or at least not right now, not even married yet. And God would have gone, I've got to find another virgin in the line of David. But what if they all said no? Well, then then God couldn't come. I'm I'm dead serious. This is what they're saying. Um, There'd be no Jesus on earth. And by that same logic, Judas might have decided, I don't want to betray my master. I kind of like him. He's a good guy. Uh, and Jesus would be stuck, wanting to be betrayed and crucified, but, you know, having to die of old age. And um, They even say that just maybe everyone will say no to Jesus and heaven will be empty and God will be very sad and lonely. Uh, and it's weird because people are lapping it up, right? And I've heard it said and taught in, in Sydney uh, in, in small ways and things, Uh, And they're teaching these kind of things in the pulpit. They think they're doing God a favour. They think they're being really protective of him. uh, and, And they're protecting his reputation as a loving father. They want people to understand God is kind and gentle and tender, which is true. He is. We've just read it. But they do it by completely emasculating God. And so God becomes a soppy and sentimental wimp who just hopes for the best and waits and sees. And the reason to bring it up now is not just to have a go, but partly to warn you that watch out, but because the rest of the chapter smashes that very thinking. Just boom, that's wrong. It says it's an arrogant and pernicious lie because yeah, the rest of the chapter is about how you can be sure that this word of comfort, which God promises, will stand. How can you know that God can and will keep this and every promise How can you absolutely know that he will not forget you? How can you have the assurance that your sins are forgiven? How can you be sure any of it will happen? Well, because of what God is like and because of who he is. And for the rest of the chapter, we're treated to one of the most awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, confidence-building pictures of just who the true and living God is who has made these promises. We're given a glimpse of how majestic, how spectacular, how awesome God is, so that you can know that nothing can thwart God or stop him doing what he has said. See, just who is this God who has promised these things? First thing God says you've got to know about God, he never goes back on his words. If that's not true, then the promises he's just made and every other one he's ever made are all for nothing. Verse 6. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. God keeps his promises. In contrast to people who are fickle and frail, people who give Facebook maybes, uh, people who come and go, who can't totally be relied on God's word stands forever. If the promises he'll bring comfort, he'll bring comfort. If he says forgiven, he means forgiven. If he's announced he's coming, he's on his way. God always keeps his promises. His word does not decay. It doesn't fade away as we do, but it stands forever. He doesn't lie. He doesn't go back on his word. He can and he always will fulfill it. God's word is utterly trustworthy. Second thing God says you need to know about him is that he is both at the same time incredibly tender, which is what... This group want to affirm, but he's unassailably powerful. Verse 9, you who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A shepherd protecting his flock with that whacking great big stick called a crook. Right? He is a powerful warrior, you know, with his crook to stave off the wild enemies and cave their heads in. I mean, I think of my recently deceased father-in-law, Les, the sheep farmer. You know, incredibly loving and gentle man in so many ways, and especially with animals. Uh, I mean, he would uh, – there were pregnant ewes who had just given up their strength and couldn't go on in the labour, and, and he would he would deliver the baby. And there were baby lambs who he, he'd pick up and take home and nurse them, you know, to health and to maturity and uh, – But come along, a fox or something. He was pretty good with a gun, right? (laughs) All right. You cross the border, and you know, stranger on the land. (laughs) Fierce protection from those who would destroy, tender compassion for those he loves, and that's who God is. And He's more than that. And and there's this incredible list of questions asking who who can match God. Who is like him? Verse 12. Who who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket and weighed the mountains on the scales or the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And and who taught God the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Master craftsman. Who effortlessly just forms the universe like a skilled, you know, artist on his workbench? Infinitely wise, who is like him? And the answer to all those questions is none but God, who can match him. He's greater than all the nations of the world. Verse 15: Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for alder nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You think ISIS is powerful? You think they're scary? You know, with their mind manipulation, their ability to cause young men and women to both kill and die in the name of Allah. You think the U.S. and China are strong with their multi-trillion-dollar economies and their nuclear arsenals? You ain't seen nothing. And the, the people of Judah should know that already. Yeah, you know, they have seen very recently a hundred and eighty-five thousand strong army die with no sword in one night. See why fear the Babylonians who are coming too? No human power can match God, no human nation can defeat him, and no supernatural power either. The so-called gods of this world are nothing to him. The idols that people make, the fake gods that they they're just they're pathetic. Look, verse 18, with whom will you compare God? To what image will you liken God? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. You know, it's all so pretty. Look what they're doing for their God. You know. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not write. Okay, I haven't got enough gold to decorate. I've, uh, I've got a hunk. I've got a log at the back. You know, they look for a skilled worker to set up. Worker to set up an idol that will not topple. We're going to come back to idols next week. Um, but the list of questions showing God's majesty just goes on and on and on. Twenty-one. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. And if you were down there set up yesterday, like stretching out the pagoda, the stall, or a marquee, or he's stretching out the tent of the heavens. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground. than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing there wasn't meant to be a third pointer. That's not there. The Southern Cross is meant to have five, you know, in it, kind of thing. You know, it'd be pretty handy if Orion was more like a person, and then you could kind of get it. It's not like just a saucepan. But you know, but God wanted it the way He wanted it. Nothing's missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. And finally, who is God? He's the one who can and who will give you the strength you need to keep going and to keep trusting, to keep knowing him even in the darkest moments. And that's how the chapter ends, verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is God, awesome in majesty, the creator of all, infinitely wise. Totally worthy of more worship than we could ever give him. Incomparable, enthroned in glory. And he cares for you. And he cares for you. And he cares for you. And even you, yeah. (laughs) Lift up your eyes, says Isaiah, and see just who it is who gives you his word, who says... Comfort, comfort my people. Your sins are forgiven. I'm coming for you. Why will we despair when this is who he is and and this is what he's promised? Especially when these words of promise and hope and comfort have already been fulfilled. For as John the Baptist exploded on the scene some 730 years later, what do the Gospels proclaim? That he was the voice in the desert proclaiming the way of the Lord, preparing the way of the Lord. Preparing the way as he, he called people to get ready. To get ready by repenting of their sins. Humbly coming back and, and acknowledging they need forgiveness as the thing they need the most. Turning back to God in humility and love. And then later as he prepared the way by announcing God's arrival. As Jesus walked over the bank of the river, And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has come. He's paid for our sins and he gives comfort and strength. And he's offering the same comfort, forgiveness and strength to any and everyone who will come to him and humbly accept his love. From whatever background, from whatever tribe, from whatever country, from whatever socioeconomic status. That is the message we have to give. That is the message, the great promise that we have to share. That's that's the news we have to proclaim as we hit Easter in our second term where we fire up for evangelism and outreach and there's a whole lot of awesome things planned for events but also yeah, as we do it in our homes and as we get out there. And the great joy we have, the great comfort we have is that those who hope in him will never do so in vain. He is good for his word. Remember who it is that promises his comfort and strength. Lift up your eyes to heaven and remember who this God is and remember his gospel where these words come true. Comfort, forgiveness, his coming. Father, we thank you for your majesty and awesomeness. And we praise you as the King of kings, the creator, the one who is beyond compare, the one who weighs the world as if it's dust, the one who raises kingdoms and destroys them, the one who all people to you are like grasshoppers and we thank you that you love these grasshoppers. (laughs) You love us. And we don't understand it, how it can be, but you do. And so we pray that we would never despair, that we would never think that you are forgotten because you have promised that you don't forget your people, that you do give forgiveness and you are coming back. Help us to take strength and hope and comfort from that and help us to go boldly into this world as we share the gospel with as many as we can and call them to come to Jesus, the one who has loved them and died for them and paid for their sins, who is alive and is the king of kings. We pray that you will draw people to yourself. Use us in your work. We pray that many might come to Christ in the next few months. Help us to work hard together, to watch each other's back, to help each other in the task. And we pray, please, for your mercy. We pray for your mercy on our city in the wake of its celebration of debauchery and all things that you hate. We pray for your mercy We pray that you'll bring this land to its knees and in humility come to you for forgiveness. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.